Norepinephrine is a chemical neurotransmitter. Noradrenergic drugs have been proven effective for depression, ADHD, and new disease indications are being identified. Recent discoveries about norepinephrine's contribution to health, disease, and therapy make this synthesis of evidence, practice, and research very timely. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz practices psychiatry in Austin, Texas, where he is also the medical director of the Irwin Foundation, a foundation supporting initiatives in psychiatric education, services delivery, and research. From this base, he edits the online, open access, peer-reviewed journal, Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. He's also a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Hawaii and an adjunct professor in philosophy and psychiatry at the University of Louisville. Dr. Schwartz, who has authored, co-authored, or co-edited over a hundred papers and volumes, has recently co-edited the book, CNS Norepinephrine, Neurobiology and Therapeutics. Welcome, Dr. Schwartz. It's great to be here, Leslie. So, Michael, you've written an entire book on norepinephrine. Is there really that much to say about one lowly neurotransmitter? I'm one of three editors of a 21-chapter book on norepinephrine, and we could have gone on for more chapters. There is that much to say about norepinephrine. Our senior author, Greg Ordway, a professor of neuroscience in Johnson City, Tennessee, and our other editor, Alan Frazier, pharmacology chairman at the University of Texas in San Antonio, got together really a very talented group of scientists and clinicians and investigators to just look at norepinephrine from every possible angle. And the book goes into depression, it goes into cognition, memory, it goes into sleep, it goes into pain, attention deficit disorder. To the basic uh, practicing physician out there listening, what do we really need to know about norepinephrine? Can you give us the highlights? When I talk about norepinephrine, I always refer back to Greg Ordway, our senior editor, who lives in Johnson City, Tennessee. And he does that because Greg and his wife love horses, and they're up against the mountains. And they have about 12 of them, I think. And you could go up there, and you could sit on his porch as the nighttime comes and talk to him about norepinephrine, his other great love. He'll tell you uh, that there only are maybe 30 to 50,000 neurons in the brain that contain all of your norepinephrine. You think of billions and millions of brain cells, but we're talking thousands of these cells, and they're all in one tiny place in the brain called the locus ceruleus and few cells elsewhere. But for all practical purposes, that's where they are. And when he explains what that does, he basically will clap his hands, clap, and all the horses will look at us. And he'll say, you know, those horses... They've got a big locus ceruleus. They've got a lot of norepinephrine, and that's what it makes them do, paying attention, looking at us right here, right now, right in this moment. That's what norepinephrine is all about. Which may be a bad thing if, that, if you're riding that horse and it decides to bolt, right? Well, you can catch them by surprise, but this capacity to be in the here and be in the now and not in tomorrow and not in yesterday and not in things that are not relevant, that capacity for a kind of an unconscious Attention and salience and participation is something that is very good. There can be too much of a good thing, yeah. What can go wrong with this norepinephrine system? Lots of things go wrong with it. I think it's better just to describe it a little bit more carefully. Right now, I am the signal, am I not, on this radio show. Everybody's paying attention to me. All the other things going on in your life, you listeners, that's all the noise right now. Maybe there's another uh, radio across the way or a television or someone's rustling newspapers. But I'm the signal, and the norepinephrine system is going to accentuate that signal and have you pay more attention to me and diminish 
the noise that's going on in your mind and in your consciousness. So you're right here, right now, right with this show. So that's, that's pretty good. That's called salience. That's a signal-to-noise detector. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about norepinephrine. It's a non-conscious kind of attention. It's not something you pay attention to. But I'll tell you, if you have that arthritic ankle and it's mildly uh, painful, it's not hurting right now because norepinephrine is basically helping you pay attention to the signal, which is me, and ignore your body. So there's something analgesic about that. It can be powerfully analgesic so that when that house burns down and mom grabs the kids and runs out of the house and saves her children, and then afterwards she discovers she's been burned and it didn't even hurt, that's how powerful that analgesic property can be of, of attention and focus. So what can go wrong is that that signal can not be very strong and that noise can be very loud, and then you might have attention deficit disorder. So most of our treatments for ADHD revolve in one way or another around norepinephrine, correct? They involve norepinephrine. They also involve dopamine. I think people are more aware of dopamine, which is stimulated in the front of the brain by norepinephrine. The norepinephrine attention is, is non-conscious, and you're not aware of it, so you don't really feel a sense of uh, improvement even. You just are more attentive and more with it. I'll tell you, the system declines with age. It declines aggressively with age. About 10% of function is lost per decade. Now, you don't see or feel that because you can run the system faster. You can compensate. Studies have shown that I'm kind of running my locus ceruleus about three times faster when I'm in a restaurant than that 30-year-old waiter. I'm in my 60s. So I can keep up. And I can keep up with my kids if I play tennis with them, but I don't want to go all day. That's the smoke and mirror of being my age. I'm good for a few hours, and then I'm, and then I'm tired. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is psychiatrist and author Dr. Michael Schwartz. We are discussing his latest book on norepinephrine. So, Mike, you mentioned that 10% decline per decade in norepinephrine. Approximately that. Again, that's, that's a kind of a heuristic, but the system really doesn't do, doesn't do very well with age, and, and there are changes and uh, losses of function, losses of connection between one cell and the next cell, diminished density of the connections, diminished activity, loss of cells. It, it's just part of the normal aging process, and, and again, there's compensation. But it does mean that attention gets poorer, focus gets more difficult, and that aches and pains can loom larger, and that sleep can become more difficult. So is there a way to harness this information into treatment strategies? It shows that medications that basically invigorate or, 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 or tone better this system can, can play a role in a lot of conditions. And of course, many of them are labeled, and some of them are not labeled. And it also begins to show, and I think that's one of the purposes of the Cambridge Press book, some of the problems that we got ourselves into when we did something good, which was really bring modern psychopharmacology online in the United States with the FDA acts of the 1960s, there have been some unintended consequences. After the tragedy of thalidomide, which basically led to the modern laws as we have them, we set up laws saying, well, you have to be more careful. You've got to use placebo-controlled double-blind studies to prove that medicines have efficacy and they have to be efficacious in a particular condition. I mean, you know, we have to be specific here, and then we have to look at tolerability and safety. Now, that sounds well and good, but the problem is that, as far as I know, there, are, there is not a single psychoactive or psychiatric medicine that has selective efficacy. So we're testing medicines for efficacy. We're testing a medicine that might, uh, for example, block the norepinephrine transporter in a particular condition, so it's labeled and shown to be effective in ADHD, 
It also could have effectiveness in other conditions. It could play a role in pain. It could play a role in depression. It could play a role in anxiety. There's nothing selective or efficacious about the medicine at all. And what this means ultimately is that the choice of what a medicine is used for becomes a business decision that pharmaceutical companies make rather than a scientific decision. Now, the pharmaceutical companies didn't ask for this in the 1960s. As a matter of fact, this legislation led to the rise of big pharma. But nowadays, these are the laws. And of course, nowadays, doctors are increasingly criticized for going off-label and for not following the PDR guidelines. When the PDR guidelines, you, know, you see, they were, they were kind of created to deal with a problem in the 1960s. Now that we've come all of these decades later, there really could be better ways of doing this, but it would be so difficult to make a change because everything we do is based upon this myth, really, of selective efficacy. We've talked before about the online open access journal that you are the editor-in-chief of called Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities in Medicine. And you know, treatment strategies aren't, aren't necessarily one of the focus points of your journal, but it leads me to think that, that this is really an opportunity here to have a dialogue with colleagues via the Internet about treatment strategies that, that perhaps aren't FDA-approved and, and may impact neurotransmitters like, like your favorite, norepinephrine. Do you think that there, there's a role in, in the Internet for this sort of dialogue? I think there is, and I think that can be done through journals such as ours and also through blogs and in many other ways. But I'm actually thinking even more ambitiously, Leslie. I'm, I'm thinking that these FDA guidelines, which made a whole lot of sense in 1963 and which solved some problems, have led to other problems. And the rules, the placebo-controlled study and the testing for efficacy, safety, and tolerability, that may not be the best way to do it. But we're stuck with it. You see, you, you, you kind of bureaucratize something and set it up, and it becomes an absolute when, in fact, it really is provisional. But how do you change it? How do you make things work better? People think that placebo-controlled studies prove that a medicine is effective, but they really don't. They don't do that at all. All that a placebo-controlled study shows is that a medicine doesn't do nothing. It doesn't show that it does something. And what that something is that it does in psychiatry is demonstrated through rating scales. And the rating scales simply have to be placebo. So if you have, for example, the Hamilton Depression Scale looking at depression, and that has scores for sleepiness, the medicine simply might make you sleepy, and it's going to turn out to be effective in depression, when in fact it really isn't. That's just an artifact of the, of the scale. So in that way, Xanax was chosen to be effective in depression. Mm. Of course, it isn't. I'm not saying that the rules don't make sense. I'm just saying that they're not absolutes. And in the debates, in the cultural debates, and in the debates about pharmacy benefit management and in the restraints that physicians are increasingly having on their practice, these rules are invoked as if they are the Ten Commandments, as if they come down from heaven, as if they prove some ultimate scientific validity. But in fact, they don't. And other ways of proving efficacy and tolerability have been suggested and really should be advanced. And I think even the FDA is interested in these new rules. And so are pharmaceutical companies. But everybody's kind of stuck because we're kind of living with these rules. People have made the argument, by the way, that entire cultures and civilizations have collapsed because of bureaucracy. And I think that that's a problem here. I think we have a very enormous bureaucracy that sort of sets things up in a certain way. And it's kind of coming down on our heads as, as physicians and as patients. And even on the heads of pharmaceutical companies who get blamed for this. But in fact, these rules make it clear 
that a medicine will not come out for its most powerful indication because it, has, it may have many indications. It's going to come out for the indication that makes the most sense from a business perspective. There's no other way. And clearly, medicines that affect norepinephrine fall into this category. Medicines that affect norepinephrine are really highly unselective and really could be reused in many, many different ways. The same thing would be true for medicines, by the way, that affect serotonin or medicines that affect dopamine. What indications uh, prevail and whether a medicine is a pain medicine or a depression medicine or a painful depression medicine or a medicine that has benefits for sexuality or for blood pressure really becomes a matter of the time and the place rather than the power of the medicine. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Michael Schwartz. We have been discussing the latest science and a little bit of politics surrounding norepinephrine. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.